Rather than allowing the gospel to define evil, what is evil, we've allowed our culture and our religious systems that have done nothing but eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from the beginning to continue to tell us what constitutes not only good and evil, but what constitutes just and unjust. Evil, today, on In the Shadow of the Cross. Another edition of In the Shadow of the Cross, Season 2. And I am Lauren Rosser, joined once again by my friends Jim Durkin. Hello. And Mephistopheles. You see that, Jim? He just owned Mephistopheles as his friend. (laughs) Which is Michael Harden. And Michael Harden, explain Mephistopheles. (laughs) Well, so you know, each week I pick a name to go by. And since we're going to be discussing things like the devil today, I thought I would be a little clever and uh, use the Enlightenment term for the devil, which is Mephistopheles. And it comes from Goethe's Faust. And it refers to the devil not so much as a moral uh, seducer as an intellectual seducer. So there you have it. And he touched on what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking today about evil. So today we're going to be looking at, we, we had somebody post a question, which they've since removed, but they posted a question on YouTube about the nature of God and uh, and a, a question along the lines of, of suffering. Because in our last podcast, Michael mentioned that with uh, the gospel teaches us how to suffer and without suffering, you have no gospel. And we thought that would be a really cool thing to unpack. So the place we thought would be a good place to start with that is talking about evil. So where do we begin talking about evil? Where where would we where would we want to begin if we're going to talk about evil? Come on now. Where do we start of, everywhere? The Garden of Eden. No, the Garden of Gethsemane. <laughs> oh, okay. Think about this. Well, one of one of those gardens anyhow. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm I'm sitting at a desk that doesn't have a workable pen, and I'm 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 realizing I don't have anything to take notes with except a big fat sharpie. So these are going to be some wild notes. <laughs> going to have some big notes, yeah. <laughs> so let's ask the question: What happens if we begin our narrative of evil with the Genesis text, and what happens if we begin our narrative evil of, of evil with the Passion text? Is there a difference? Is there uh, yeah. a difference? Okay. Is there a similarity? Uh, yes. What's the similarity first? Uh, the similarity would be that both have the presence of the knowledge of good and evil taking place um, involved in the suffering. In, in Gethsemane, it would be causing the suffering because the knowledge of good and evil is causing them to perceive Jesus as being evil. What's going on in both gardens? A uh, test. Oh, okay. A test. Mm-hmm. A test to see the response of the uh, human figure that's interacting with divinity. In the Garden of Eden, it's the male-female. In, of course, Gethsemane, it's not just Jesus, but it's the disciples. disciples and it's also, also going to include in the narrative the uh, temple uh, police, okay? The Genesis narrative, you, it, both, both of these narratives have to do with choice, making a choice. What is it that the couple, quote, quote, chooses to do? They choose to know what it is to be like God, to know good and evil. What is it that Jesus refuses to do? What does, he, what does he refuse to do? He refuses to, quote, be like a God and ask his father, who is not like the other gods, to be like a God and send legions of angels. That was a possibility, right? Yeah. Now, 
Is that something that was in the Father's will to send legions of angels to save Jesus? No. Was that in? No. Wasn't in his will at all. Could it be done? Yes. Did Jesus refuse that? Yes. He wouldn't put the Father to the test, did he? Right. No, he wouldn't. Does Jesus know evil in the Garden of Gethsemane? Is he aware of good and evil? And if so, what's, what is good and what is evil in Jesus' choice? Good is to do the will of the Father and to suffer righteously and with mercy, compassion, and forgiveness for those that are persecuting him. He is going to live out the Sermon on the Mount here. Right. Right? Okay. The evil that he refuses is the evil of retribution, retaliation, and the category of justice. Think about this. Would it have been just for Jesus, the Son of the Father, to call legions of angels down to defend him from being crucified? Would that by the be way, just? By the way, we define justice. I, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> right? But that's not there. Right? So in the in the garden, when you go to the garden, if you're gonna if you're gonna talk about evil in the garden, that's one thing we're gonna do tonight. We're gonna work that Genesis text, gonna massage it because it's it's an extraordinary text from a, a, a Jewish perspective on evil. But in the Christian tradition, for me. If I want to understand the character, the radical character of evil, what what makes evil evil, I have to start with the passion narrative. And I have to ask, what is evil in this narrative? And what is evil in that narrative? Is this scapegoating phenomenon all against one? All against one. With me? Right. Yes. So when we when we come to Genesis, the Genesis, uh, I'm going to use the term myth, M-Y-T-H, but I don't want that to be interpreted to mean I'm seeing it in, in the same way I would interpret a Homeric myth, an Aztec myth. I'm, I'm using it in the very specific mimetic theoretical sense of a narrative of origins that hides any traces of violence against victims. That's that's very specifically the definition so, so of myth. Just, so just to clarify, what you mean by myth, you're saying that that's... that's um, an origin of something, but it's told in a way where you're hiding the victim in that story. Correct. And the, and the example that Gerard and Gerardians, we all love to use is the, the story of Oedipus who in the myth is, is in the, the origin, original myth uh, is guilty, sees himself as guilty. He deserves to die. You know, he's done all these things. He killed his dad, married his mom. Okay. Blah, 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 all the bad stuff, all the taboo stuff. But in the later play by Sophocles, Oedipus Rex, Sophocles makes a turn, and he has Oedipus question at one point in the play whether or not he in fact killed him because Oedipus says, I heard a tale told that a turba, a mob, killed Theseus, my, my father, right? Yeah. So now you're starting to see the Greek playwrights begin to unpack Oedipus's guilt or innocence here by just inserting that little, I heard it was a mob, you know? And so right. the, myth, the myth is now starting to break down in Greek culture. Well, one of the beautiful things about scripture is that it does precisely the same thing because myths are expression of culture and religion. And one of the things, well, I mean, one of the if there's anything that Scripture is about from from the beginning to the end is you shall have no religion, you shall have no gods before me. You know, there's just you and me. There's no religion. Yeah. And um, and we find in the Genesis narrative now this this telling of a story that moves from a couple, but by the time you get to the end of the myth in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel, which is just a way to say we've got this sacrificial mechanism in place. You know, you got to remember like uh, Apocalypto by Mel Gibson, where they're sacrificing people at the top and rolling the heads down the steps kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And at the end of this narrative, the humans are going, we're going to build this thing to heaven. In other words, we're going to make sure this way of thinking has divine authorization. Okay. 
right? And what yeah. does God do? Oh, no, 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 no. See, the, the thing is, is that when the, we come to these texts, we go, oh, look at how proud they were. This has nothing to do with pride. It has everything to do with religion and sacrifice. And when we get that, what we're, what we're hearing is God saying no to this way we have started to structure our world uh, in, from Genesis 3 forward, how we've structured our world. So if okay. I could do a quick run through, just real quick. The beauty of the, of the text here is you have this couple in this garden with this talking snake. Now, let, let's all admit snakes don't talk. What? And and yeah, right. And uh and unless you're unless you're gonna, you know, do some kind of, you know, superstitious thing that, that God could make any snake talk he wants. He made a jackass talk to Balaam and all that kind of, okay. You I guess if you want to go there, you can go there, but in my world that kind of doesn't work. Um, and that's fine. Uh, but you have this you have the male, you have the female, you have the snake. Now, what's really key here? is to understand that, that we are, the, the writer is trying to give us the dynamic of a relationship. And this relationship is fundamentally going to have to do with imitation. And you'll notice that, that the command is given, don't eat of the fruit of the, of the you know, tree of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil. Don't do that. That's not for you. Okay. The woman eats the fruit. What happens? The man copies. Well, but nothing happens. Oh, nothing happens. Right? Is yeah. she gonna? Is she gonna die? Did she die? No. Was there any indication she was gonna die? No. 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 Does she have knowledge of good and evil? I don't think so. No. No. When does the knowledge of good and evil arise? After the man eats. After the man eats, because the man copies her. He imitates her action. Now the man and the woman, instead of imitating the divine are imitating each other. Okay. And that is, the, as you know, is the beginning of how we understand human relations. The problem of human relations is that when we imitate each other, we end up in a rivalry. When we end up in a rivalry, rivalry there has to be a winner and a loser. Okay? So we're going to move right away from this eating of the fruit into this blame game. Hmm. Right? I mean, bam, yeah. it says, I, it wasn't me, 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 right? Okay. Yeah. And immediately from that comes an expulsion from the tree of life. Now, to be exiled from the Garden of Eden was a gift of grace. Because mm -hmm. had we eaten that tree, uh, tree of life, we would have been stuck in this forever, so to speak. Right? And so yeah. this, the same action is taken in the expulsion of the garden as is taken at the end of the narrative with the um, uh, expulsion of the, of the peoples into different language groups so they couldn't understand each other. Yeah. Right? But who's really getting expelled in this narrative? God. The humans do not want whatever it is the divine is offering. Okay. Okay. In, yeah. Through the whole narrative. And so you mm -hmm. go right from this mimetic desire, very Girardian, you know, to sacrifice, Cain and Abel, murder, death, revenge. And, and, and for the first time ever, ever in ancient literature, the voice of the victim has, uh, has been found. Your brother's blood cries out from the ground. In other words, divinity hears the voice of the victim. Yeah. That's the first time that's in a myth. You never find that in a myth, right? So here the Bible is really trying to flash lights all everywhere. Lots of lights. Pay attention. Pay attention. This is happening here. And, of course, God does not bring justice to Abel, does he? No. There is no justice for Abel. Yeah. Not in the way that it's defined in terms of the way we do justice, right? Yeah, because let me let me pause you just one second because I remember reading that passage, especially in my teen years, and it would really bother me that he just marked that he just marks Cain and goes, "Go on your merry way, don't let anybody touch him." I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm watching Die Hard. I'm watching, you know, and I'm like, 
what the hell, God? You know, this is yeah. wrong. Yeah. So go ahead, pick it up. Well, so you move from there. And, and, and when God marks Cain, as you noted, uh, he says, if anybody touches Cain, there's going to be a sevenfold vengeance. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that should put should put the fear of some kind of a god into you, you know, because uh, you don't want to kill somebody and then have seven of your family members slaughtered. Right. Okay, so right. What's what what you get this little genealogy thing, and then you get the next character is Lamech, and Lamech says, "Hey, I'm at the top of the heap. A little boy scratched me, and I killed him. My vengeance is seventyfold." Oh wow. Yeah. Scratch my arm, killed him. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But then you move from there into genealogy again, and then into the flood story. And three times at the very beginning of the flood story, it says the earth was full of homosexuality, licentiousness, drinking, abortion, all these terrible, terrible things. It doesn't say that. No, no. Three three times it says the earth was full of Violence. violence. Mm-hmm. Violence. In other words, humanity's humanity already by chapter six of Genesis, already by chapter six is on a course of mutually assured destruction. I mean, dudes, this is six chapters into the Bible and we're getting ready to write the ending, you know, yeah. as a species. Mm-hmm. And and so, of course, here, well, how, how are we going to deal with this? Well, we're going to kind of have to do a reboot. And that means we got to get the virus out of the system. And so here come the floods. We do the reboot. And we have sacrifice. Right right off the bat, Noah's offering a sacrifice off the ark. Those, by the way, were the unicorns. And that's why unicorns no longer <laughs> exist. Exactly. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, can you see all the animals going, oh jeez, who's he gonna choose? Who's he gonna choose? <laughs> We're the last of our species. No, so you have sacrifice, and then of course you 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 have the Tower of Babel narrative, which finishes off that 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 whole narrative, and it's all about sacrifice from Abel to Babel, right? Yeah. So the Jewish train of thought is um, very, very, very clear that what, whatever we're going to call evil or justice or anything, it's bound and locked up with the question of sacrifice and divinity. That's precisely what the passion narrative is about, right? Second, and I've said this before, as Gerard pointed out, the passion narrative and myth have the same structure for a reason because the passion narrative, according to Rene, is the scientific way to read myth. The gospel, he says, is the science of mythology. So we are being taught by the gospel how to read our originary stories through eyes that have been opened rather than through closed eyes. Let me give you an example. In America, I've, I grew up as a kid, you know, we had Thanksgiving, the Indians were nice to the pilgrims, you know, we had Columbus Day, yay, somebody came and discovered America, you know, we had Christmas, baby Jesus came down, we had Holy Week, we had a, you have all these holidays. And um, there came a point in my life where I discovered that, oh, the pilgrims weren't so nice to the Indians, and <laughs> uh, the baby Jesus story didn't happen the way I was told, and 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 um, uh, Columbus was a colonizer, you know. You know, I'd say I'm having my myths overturned, right? Yes. Well, that's all of us in the postmodern age. All of our myths are being overturned. This is one of the reasons we are so lost, is these originary myths that we once had are no longer myths. Now, there are those in the universities who want to replace that myth with an alternate myth, which still carries with it sacrifice, retribution, everything else. And this, I would include in this, and it's really going to irk some people, but I would include in, the, in this uh, attempts to use political race, a critical race theory in a, um, a polarizing manner. Okay. But then you also have the false mythology. And we discussed this a few weeks back. Uh, that we're given in church, this false myth of church history and how our tradition is the true tradition. We can trace it all the way back kind of thing. Right. So the gospel comes into busts our mythology. That's the first thing. But what if our mythology gives us a definition of evil 
And we bring that definition into the gospel. Is it going to work? No, that would, uh, that would mess things up. It would really, and that's precisely what's happened. Wow. Yeah. Rather than allowing the gospel to define evil, what is evil, we've allowed our culture and our religious systems that have done nothing but eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from the beginning to continue to tell us what constitutes not only good and evil, but what constitutes just and unjust. It, it has us laying out the world in binary categories, the holy, the unholy, the clean, the unclean. It has us doing this with everybody. And if you're a good guy, I like you. If you're a bad guy, I don't want you to, you know, we, we raise our kids with the same way. We tell them, hang out with the good kids, not the bad kids, right? Yeah. When, when in fact, I, to be honest, I was one of those bad kids, you know, growing really? up. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I wish everyone could see. Oh, oh, that was precious. That was I, precious. I wish everyone could see Jim's expression. When he, said, he said, really? really? It was like, oh, big surprise. <laughs> but, but look, the, again, the thing is, is that the, the, the gospel, if, if, as long as we bring definitions from outside, and we don't allow the passion narrative, the cross, to be that absolute moment that helps us define everything so that we can reorient ourselves, we lose. Then I'll stop there for now. Wow. <laughs> there's there's a lot there to unpack. Uh, so, Jim, what, what are your thoughts? Well, <laughs> bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it would be difficult to add a lot to uh, what Michael just shared uh, because I, I think he did an outstanding job of explaining that the majority of humanity thinks of evil as all the bad things that other people do. And, uh, you know, righteousness is the good that I do, you yeah. know, or some, yeah, you know, and, and, oh yeah, occasionally I do something bad, but I'm not an evil person. I mean, basically I'm a good person, you know, everybody else is evil or, or at yeah. least if not everybody, at least I know several people that are, you know. And and history is filled with evil people, and but that's not me. And I, I think our, our measuring rod, I think it would be safe to say, our measuring rod is is all messed up, <laughs> you know. Or maybe maybe it's a measuring rod that we created rather than uh, you know the one we should be using on what what actually is evil. Mm -hmm. I, I do find it interesting that um, Michael said that that we have to start in a different garden. I think I, I think for most religious people, uh, they would start in the Garden of Eden, exactly as you said, Lauren. Uh, well, that's where it all started. I mean, you know, um, okay, Eve. You know, the narrative that I was raised with is that <laughs> Eve was deceived. And the reason it's Adam's sin is because he wasn't. You know, God didn't tell Eve not to eat. God told Adam not to eat. And blah, 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 like blah, every, blah, blah, blah. Every man on the planet, Adam didn't tell Eve. <laughs> yeah, just, uh, you know, well... Have you ever tried to tell your wife anything? <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm not touching that with a tip. Yes, I went there. Oh. I'm Jim, telling your wife to listen to this episode. I just want to say, Jim, she doesn't it's very nice knowing you. Yeah, she, she doesn't was. listen to any of them. We'll send her this. I've got her phone number. Blackmail. Exactly. So, 
you know, so you start there with the wrong, you know, and and here we are, uh, young Earth theory. Here we are, six thousand years later, and um, you know, the reason there's evil in the world is because Adam blew it. You know, and it's like the whole narrative has to be. Well, I was going to say has to be uh, taken apart and and reexamined, but mm -hmm. probably uh, it it just needs to be thrown in the fires of hell and, and <laughs> come up with a whole new narrative. By the way, one of these days I'm going to take time and give you my perspective of the two podcasts you guys did without me. <laughs> okay. Why, why, why am I shaking in my boots? <laughs> I know. <laughs> We're in trouble, Michael. <laughs> We're in trouble. I mean, Daddy's home. <laughs> Daddy's home. Oh, no. <laughs> but the, inter the interesting thing is, is what I... Even before you started uh, it, it, unpacking it, Michael, when you said it was the Garden of Gethsemane, my mind went to the place of, you know, I want to hear what you have to say, but I think I, 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 think I get it. Hmm. Because if you listen to Jesus' answer, nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. And... and Adam's, what you're saying basically is, yeah, I know God's will, but, you know, in this case, I think I'm going to invoke my own will. Well, he, he, we, 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 can we stop for a second, break that down, parse it? Yeah. Um, and, and by the way, again, this episode and whatever we're going to do, the episode for next week, they're going to tie it together. So the theodicy question, we're going to hold off for next week, right? Yeah, right. Because we're, we're looking at texts today. Um, first, remind me, Jim, to come back to the Philippians 2 text. Okay. But in the, in the Genesis text, for example, um, if you start there uh, with the Genesis text, you have to ask the real, the real question you have to ask is, uh, is there so-called so -called free will in the text when we look at free will, right? And we go, mm -hmm. oh, well, there must be because God gives a command, okay? God gives us free will to, to obey or not. Now, the woman disobeys and nothing happens. Again, why, why, does, why do things happen when the man eats it? Because he copied. The woman is not copying anyone or anything. Okay, and in other words, here's the thing. And this, this, I'm not mean to upset readers or anything, but the male, the female, and the snake do not represent a male, a female, or a talking snake. They, we can, we can see these as uh, symbols of human psychology. Okay. This, this is how I, I would prefer to read a text like this is anthropologically because the dynamics of exploring the text anthropologically are far richer and far more pertinent to how to deal with real-life situations in our world today than to read them through this kind of theological, philosophical lens that explains where evil came from, as mm -hmm. though you could explain evil, as though right. evil was a category that could be it's to explain, to take the deception out of, ex plano, to, to remove the deception. You remove the deception from evil, it ceases to exist. You cannot explain evil without... It doesn't continue to exist. And think about the Western tradition. We've got all these explanations for evil, and evil still exists in, in, our, in our world, the way we frame our world, right? But in the gospel... Does evil exist? No. It has been crucified. It's dead. Right. It ceased to exist. What is it? What is that? It, what is it that exists? Boom! Resurrection and new life. That's what's. That's existence. 
So I, I'm, I'm preferring to read these texts, these early texts, in a, a more anthropological fashion. And if you take the man, the woman, and the snake, what you have here is this, again, this triangle of desire, mediated desire. We only want what other people want. We model their wants. And be, when we do that, knowing or not knowing that there is a limited supply of everything, if we all want the same thing, we have trouble, don't we? Okay. Yeah. The text is trying to really show us something about the character of the knowledge of good and evil. What does the knowledge of good and evil bring? It brings about religion, sacrifice. It brings about idolatry, false views of God. The knowledge of good and evil is not a healthy thing to have. Okay? Yeah. What is when you're a little child, a little little child, four, five, six years old, and you got I mean, I have little few few memories of back then, but do you do you remember playing yeah. out in the backyard? Yeah. And how you could turn a tree into a castle or a starship oh, yeah. or something else. Oh, and for for yeah. hours and hours, you could play and play and play and play. You had this imagination that just ran wild. Right? You, didn't th you didn't think about evil. I mean, the other, there was the, the quote, you know, things you were ch challenged by, whatever. But we weren't thinking of evil, evil, right? Yeah. And we had a lot of fun. Now, we've lost that capacity. And the gospel gives it back to us. Jesus says, unless you become like little children, you can't enter the kingdom. We go, oh, little children are humble. Baloney. I've seen some pretty <laughs> cocky kids. You know, It's um, true. Uh, little children are helpless. Uh, no, they're not. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. uh, so what's the analogy we're to draw with little children? And I, I, I would argue that the, the thing that Jesus is saying is little children have an imagination. They can imagine what I'm imagining, the reign of God here. They can imagine it. Don't, 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 don't stop children from coming because we are meant to be imaginative, creative, fun-loving, tree-playing, backyard-romping people. That's what we're meant to be. Right. In yeah. relation to the Father and each other, you know, not, not, not a people governed by rules and regulations or the knowledge of good and evil. Right. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's the thing is that um, when we look at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is that it, it wasn't that God was saying, don't eat from that tree because you'll have the knowledge of evil. Mm -hmm. It's the knowledge of good and evil. That's right. <laughs> we, and, and, and notice it says they'll be like God. They'll be able our, to discriminate. Exactly. And that's and that's the because they move from trust, mm -hmm. which is what we see in Jesus. They move mm -hmm. from trust to operating out of their own. Basically, it's this. I don't need you, Father, because I can discern good and evil on my own. Yes. So I've I've got this thing down. Right. right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, if you have a, if you have a moral code, like we do today, and you go to church today, you get a moral code. Okay, let's see. I haven't murdered anybody. I go to church on Sunday. I respect my parents. Um, uh, I'm faithful to my spouse. Oh, hey, I'm good. I'm all good. I know what good is. That guy across the street, friggin' drunk, you know, does this, that. And he's bad. I'm good. And once we start that, we lose. Yeah, because we turn that into that that we turn that moral distinction into racial distinction, economic distinction, and every other kind of distinction. Because what is it that we seek when we are in a mimetic crisis? Difference or distinction? Because we can't be the same. It's not our differences that cause our problems. It's when we're all the same, and we need to distinguish ourselves. And that's. I mean, Jim, Jim uh, has more experience of this than I do in the charismatic movement, but it's been my impression in the charismatic movement that you're always trying to distinguish yourself a little bit from the guy you're, you were mentored under. So the person that mentors you has a vision of three secrets to the kingdom. Well, you come out with seven, and then your protege comes out with nine, and, and everybody's out trying to outdo everybody. And that, that, that's the problem of the need 
to be different. They need to be distinct. They need well, to I have an identity I, I, that's not a mob identity. I think there's a, a, a both things. Um, what you described, certainly, you know, and, and, and it's promoted uh, many times, certainly, in, you know, I'm more familiar with charismatic circles. So, mm -hmm. you know, that my ceiling becomes your floor, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, you know, in other words, I want you to do, you know, and, and Jesus said it's enough that the student becomes as his master, not <laughs> not better than or mm -hmm. exceed or, you know, you mm -hmm. know, Elisha, Elijah syndrome, you know, I want double what you did, you know. Yeah, right. But the other, but the other side of it is, is, um, I think what you were, you know, talking about uh, uh, Adam and Eve. So I'm not a theologian. Really? Yeah, <laughs> But now I'm, but now I'm friends with Michael, so I need to start using bigger words, and, and I need to start talking about mimetic theory, and I need to, you know, read Rene Girard, and I, and I need to, you know, so that I can be like Michael. I'm so happy you finally seen the light, my brother. This is beautiful. <laughs> and and so you have both things. Yeah, the copycat yeah. thing, mm -hmm. and then I want to be better than my even my mentor was, mm -hmm. and and in Christian circles, you know, let's take uh, you know the Ephesians uh, model of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. So somebody, you know, decides that you know it's not good enough to be a pastor. You know, I've got to be an apostle, but I have to probably have to be a prophet first because I have to work through, you know, you don't jump up to the top rung of the ladder. You have to go up one step at a time. So I'm going to look around the room and or, you know, around Christianity and I'm going to find a prophet that, you know, I'm, I'm going to study his way or her way of doing it. And, and I'm going to be just like him or her. And eventually I'll be an apostle and then I can be like so-and-so. And, you know, and it's like, it's, it's as evil inside the church as mm -hmm. what we see outside the church. It's still, mm -hmm. uh, it's not submitting to the Christ within, it's not submitting to our Father who says, you know, you were fearfully and wonderfully made, if if, if you want to go back to an old, old Old Testament scripture. You know, I made you. I didn't make, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm just going to, uh, I'm not going to drop names here, you know. I didn't make Michael Harden 2.0, you know, and and so, you know, work out the bugs and be better than him, you know. So, it was my understanding that model was scrapped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> but, but, yeah. It's it kept like, crashing into things. That's what I was told. And, and I think it's, a, it's an interesting, uh, what we're talking about here, because... Who, who would say, when talking about evil or describing evil, who would say that evil exists within the church every bit as much as it does outside of the church? Right. Not, not too many people would say that. You know. Well, they wouldn't say they wouldn't say it about their church, but they'd say it about other churches. It, other oh churches. well. Yeah. No, that's true. Okay. Yeah. No, but they yeah. would. Oh yeah, and and their definition would be starting probably would be starting with beliefs, doctrines, you know, then go to worship styles, mm -hmm. and, and, and you know, 
and then go to the sins of leadership. Yeah, but it's interesting because when we, Lily and I were youth pastors and the, the church we were in, before we knew any of this about mimetic theory and sacrifice or any of this, you, you know, Lily uh, tends to see pictures, you know, see visions. Um, we were in a worship service and Lily shared with me afterwards, she goes, I saw this knife that was spinning around and then it would pick a target and fly at that person. And uh, it, it took us years to figure out after we were the knife hit us <laughs> that that it was that thing of sacrifice that we're talking about the mimetic theory of we need we need someone to sacrifice and that was very much functioning in that congregation where yeah, yeah. there would be somebody who would be the uh, the you know the bottom of the rung the bad person the 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 person targeted by the community. And, uh, and all the heat would go on that person until that yeah. person left. And then yeah. there'd be a sense of relief. Everything's yeah. good. That person's gone, that false prophet, that Jezebel, you know, whatever it was. And then, and then it would, and then eventually it would start again. There would, there would have to be somebody else who would have to go on the altar. Um, and that is, as Michael has shared before, that that's what kept the peace in the community was having that sacrifice. And eventually, Lily and I didn't become aware of it until we were, it was our this, turn. That's right. And now there's a, there's a great book on this, Lauren, and it's by Shirley Jackson called The Lottery. Have you ever read it? Real short story. I, I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. So you can either read the book. It's very short. It's online. It's free. Or you can go to YouTube and Google Shirley Jackson, The Lottery. It's a little 30-minute movie they made. But it tells that exact story. Uh, it's a little town in, like, New England. And every year they celebrate a festival a certain day of the year. And all the families come together. And, and then they have a lottery. And that lottery, of course, is the Joshua 7-type lottery. And this ah. woman, the whole story, the whole story, she's going around, praise this day, praise this day, love this day, it's a great day, you know. And, and But on that day, her number comes up. And hmm. all of a sudden, all of a sudden, this isn't right, this isn't fair, this is unjust, right? Exactly. So there's, your, there's the human story in a novel form. There's your story, my story, Jim's story, brilliantly expressed – but then it's no different than the passion narrative, is it? It's not. And, and that's the thing. All it's against like, one. Right. And that's the thing when we talk about evil, that that's the thing after going through that and then and then growing and learning these things. Um, it caused me the whole time I was a teacher, I would keep my eyes open. Who's the student here? Who's who's the target? And you would you would see it, you know? Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. interesting thing is though. When I was, when I taught in a, 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 it was basically an impoverished, dominantly Hispanic school. Mm -hmm. It never happened. It's right. really weird. It never happened. Um, in fact, my daughter, somebody tried to make, she attended that school. Somebody tried to make fun of her. And she said, three students stood up for her and it immediately shut down. Where at the school I shot, taught at later, that, that was more economically advanced, mm -hmm. um, it was very prevalent, like constantly trying to find the target who's going to be the one to, to bring down. And, and what, let me just say this. The reason why I asked Michaela, why do you think that didn't exist at the other school? She goes, because all of them, a lot of them were, were immigrants and stuff. They know what it is to be the, uh, the outcast, the underdog. So they didn't have that mentality. So go, go ahead, Michael. Well, let me ask you, I, I, I don't know if this is a fair question, but in the second school you were at, was it primarily a, a, a waspish, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant school? It was actually mixed. It was pretty equal um, among the. It was. Uh, I would say it was almost you, fifty. You, it was almost fifty-fifty, black and white. No, I'm not black and white. I'm trying to think of religious traditions here because oh, Hispanics, oh, Hispanics very, are going to be Catholic. They were Catholic. The, the, okay. Yes, they were dominantly they, Catholic, they, the future one a, Protestant. They have a sacrificial apparatus in place, especially Mexican or Spanish Catholicism, which is loaded with festivals related to sacrifice and the dead and everything else. Yeah. The Protestant tradition, we we whitewash sacrifice. We don't we don't have quote superstitious sacrificial mechanisms. No. Ours are all 
biblically rational. <laughs> right. Right. But they don't work. And yeah. so the, the, I would argue the Hispanic kids in their religious orientation had an outlet. I never thought of that. Didn't. That's mm. brilliant. No, that, that gave me goosebumps because you're absolutely right. Because they, they, were, they were very religious, very involved in their Catholic communities. Um, where the second church, they were very, the ones who were church going, a lot didn't have any religion. And then the ones who did, they were, they were uh, extremely Protestant. So, yeah, very interesting. Yeah. I, I would I would say that Protestantism is is really an extremely sacrificial religion. It's very sacrificial, and when you when you combine Protestantism with America, I mean America is a Protestant country. And always, yeah. I mean, you could say, okay, the first presidents were Anglican or Episcopal or whatever, and uh, but you'll never, nobody will ever forget the John Kennedy when he ran and he was a Catholic and he was going to be beholden right. to the Pope and right. And all that stuff. Right. Um, but the reality is, is we are a Protestant nation. And when you look at Protestantism, just as a whole, just go back to the, what happens in the, in the, in the late 16th century, all through the 17th, 18th, 19th and 20th centuries where Protestantism goes war. War, war, war follows. War follows Protestantism in its wake. Okay? Yeah. It does. Now, that's not to say that Catholicism doesn't have its conquests, its inquisitions, its pogroms. It doesn't. It has all kinds of stuff. But where you find Protestantism, where you find tomfoolery, that's the other term for Protestantism, where you find it, you're going to find rivalry, violence, and war. Because the the reformers when they did away with the sacrifice of the mass they did away with that mechanism which allows western christian culture to be western christian culture and it's taken 500 years but we're seeing this erosion of of sacrificial mechanisms they don't work we we went after as a world and 911 we needed a scapegoat. We needed one. So who'd we go after? Well, we went after Osama bin Laden. Couldn't find him. So we needed a scapegoat. Where'd we go next? Iraq. Saddam Hussein. Perfect scapegoat, right? Right. Well, did it work? No. A few years before in Libya with uh, Gaddafi? Yeah. All, I mean, all, he, wanted, it, all yeah. he wanted to do was put the, the Libyan uh, currency on a gold standard. They killed him, right? We need a scapegoat. We'll go after Osama. Nope. How about Saddam? Does he work as a scapegoat? Nope. We finally get Osama bin Laden. Is he a good scapegoat? Nope. Because why? It doesn't create unity. It did. When you kill a scapegoat, it recreates unity. But the gospel has undone that. The power of the gospel is that we now know that is a false mechanism. Right? Yeah. Except for when we're justified doing it. Then it's then it, we're doing God's will, right? We're okay. back in the knowledge of good and evil. We're mm -hmm. back into being seduced and lied to by the very thing itself that we think we're becoming free from. And right. only the gospel can set us free. That's good. Yeah, yeah. So I I have a question. It's going to take us back. When you talked about the the garden, you said it, you know who. Who, um, the Garden of Gethsemane, who was the central figure there? And I think uh, it was Lauren said Jesus. And mm -hmm. you said, well, what about the disciples? Mm -hmm. And what about the temple guards? And mm -hmm. so I, I, I've been kind of just reflecting on the statement of what about the disciples? Mm. And I, I, I find myself kind of thinking, uh, you know, about a few scenarios that I've seen uh, right. in the church world and history. There's always the, the ones who choose to kind of just close their eyes or go to sleep hmm. and let the other people battle, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. go through their battle not realizing that it's in the going to sleep that you've lost your battle. 
Uh, well done. Yeah. I wow. see that. I saw I see what you did there. <laughs> nice. Yeah. That's good. And then yeah. I'm also with uh, talking about the disciples, you know, when when Jesus tells Peter, you know, Peter says, "Though everyone leave you, I won't deny you." And when we get all, "Ah, Peter wasn't strong enough." This goes back to the thing of the Garden of Eden. You know that that Peter showed his humanity that he imitated the people around him. This is this is really important for Gerard that um, that even Peter falls away. Even Peter imitates the mob, because in the end, in the end, a mythic narrative requires all against one. That's the mythic narrative. However, in the gospel, there's a really fascinating break in that narrative. And again, it's like in Genesis 1, we have the voice of the victim for the first time. Well, here we have a myth, quote, the passion narrative, the mythic structure. But it's not all against one because it's not his mother there with him. Right. And, and another Mary and a beloved see. So it's yeah. the mechanism is already being questioned. Is it is does is it's not all against one. Yeah. You see, it's it's already that we have that breakdown even before the death. And that's really important that we have these witnesses to this horrific event that can name it for what it is. Okay. So before, you know, next week when we start exploring theodicy. Um, we're, we're going to really, we're looking at, 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 at the way the category of theodicy, uh, arose. It's an enlightenment term. Leibniz is the first one to use it in the title of a book around 1700. And it comes from two Greek words, theos and decay, theos meaning God and decay being the root for righteousness or just justice, you know, and theodicy is the question of how can a just God create a world where there is evil and suffering, right? And that question is not a biblical question. That's an enlightenment question. Mm. It's not a biblical question. And so next week when we explore the enlightenment question and the responses to it, we're going to take some really cool cues from a theologian who taught at Fordham University back back in the – in the 20th century, late 20th century, uh, Terence Tilly. And we're also going to have a little help from um, uh, Anthony Thistleton, the great hermeneutic scholar from England. Um, but we have to, we, we have to help our friends and those we love think, truly think, gospelly <laughs> in terms of mythically. Yeah. And to think in terms of the gospel is to have the, quote, mind of Christ. It's not to know his thoughts. It's to have that same structured worldview that he had. Right. And, of course, we know where that starts, and that starts with trusting Papa. And we know where it ends with trusting Papa. And everything in between is about getting rich. No. <laughs> <laughs> It's about trusting Papa, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes. The whole thing from beginning to end is learning to trust. Yeah. Right? That's the gospel. I yeah. I I think, yeah, what you're saying, I I I'm sitting here when Lauren, you brought up Peter uh denying the Lord, and I, I'm sitting here thinking about a narrative uh that it seems to be based on human nature. Let's put it that way. So here's a guy who thinks that the reason Jesus picked him was because he's brash, he's tough, he's in your face, you know, and he's going to be the Lord's protector at all times. And so... One night, the Lord says, okay, guys, make sure you got a sword. We're getting ready to go and do some things here. And so 
now here comes the temple guards and Peter's ah here it is here's my t my chance here yeah. here we go and pulls out a sword and the same Jesus who said make sure you have your sword is now saying put that thing away if you live by that you're going to die by that yeah and you know I could have called a legion of angels to come and protect me. I don't really need you. Now here's a deflated yeah. man. What yeah. the heck have I been doing for three years? I, I thought I was this guy's protector. And when I do try and protect him, he calls me Satan at one point. <laughs> In another point, he says, put it away. And he, and he heals the guy that I'm trying to, you know, and and he tells me I'm wrong. And you can just see this guy with his head hung down trying to figure out what the heck have I been doing the last three years and why am I hanging out with this guy? And now people say, oh, you're one of them. And he's, I don't think I am. I think I just got scapegoated here. <laughs> you know, I just got pushed out of the crowd of my position of being the defender of this man. And now this man's telling me, I don't need you. I don't want you. Which, obviously, Jesus never said. He just said, I don't want your sword. <laughs> right. You know, right. but... Isn't it human nature to go to that deflated place of, oh, I've been rejected because what I think is my ability to show the Father's, or, you know, walk in the Father's will to defend his son, you know, and, and it gets rejected, and, and therefore we think, I'm rejected. And so, screw it. I'm out of here. I, I don't need this anymore, you know. We're, we're going to have to talk about the miss next week. We're going to have to really talk about the misuse of the mechanism of, as you've identified it. And that's where uh, I'm the victim. Uh, everybody yeah. hates me. Nobody likes me. Because that is a that is a way of thinking. It's a strategy used by narcissists and used by evil people. And mm -hmm. it's currently being used uh, quite a bit in the mainstream news media. Mm -hmm. uh, and certain politicians and celebrities and others, they like to fancy themselves as the victim. You know, right. but we're going to have to talk about that and Nietzsche next week and the Enlightenment. And whew, this has this been oh, yeah. really we might have to, We might have to go a couple more weeks on this one. Yeah, and, and, and even Jim, just real quick, it's funny when you were talking about how Peter hears it. I, I see that all the time as a manager where I'll, I'll hear somebody oh. say, this person said this, the director said the cruelest thing to me while we were on the, uh, on the director's track. And I'll play the director's track back. And he says, can you please move camera six? Hello? Yeah. I said move camera <laughs> yeah. six. It's yeah. like, yes, yeah. that was so abusive, you know? And so I hear what you're saying. It's, it is human nature, man, when you got those hangups, you know, to hear what you think you're hearing and it's not true. But anyway. Well, in the oh, fantasy of my own mind, I can sit in my living room and I can dream up this whole thing of how I'm going to do something in a, in a setting. Yeah. And, and how people are going to receive it. And it's going to be, you know, it's, it's going to turn things around. And, you know, and people for years to come are going to say, man, what Jim did, just, it, man, it saved our organization. And I introduce it and people look and say, where in the world did you get that hairball idea? For <laughs> right. we would never do something like that. Uh, that's not even. Cat? That's not even. <laughs> yeah, really. That's not even the way we think. Right. And and now I'm you know I'm going to cancel my membership. I'm leaving. I'm you know 
oh, those guys are all idiots. They're right. you know, like, yeah. Yeah. Anyhow, I relate. Sadly, I do relate to myself, not not other people. I mean, from That's myself having nature. those moments. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, everybody, this has been a really good conversation. I'm so glad we're going to keep going next week. So uh, next week, everybody, be sure to tune in. And in the meantime, uh, Jim, where can people find your book? On Amazon. All right. And Michael, where can people find your videos and books? YouTube and Amazon. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and we'll talk to you all again next week. 